Good morning. This morning we are privileged to have a guest with us. Uh, Dr. Vincent Baycoat um, is visiting Dort today from Wheaton College where he serves as Associate Professor of Theology and as the Director of the Center for Applied Christian Ethics. He's also a scholar um, and a lead thinker on Abraham Kuyper. the author of The Spirit of Public Theology, Appropriating the Legacy of Abraham Kuyper, and will be speaking to us this morning on hope and sanity in our confused age. Will you please join me in welcoming Dr. Vincent Baycote. Well, good morning. It's great to be with you all. Uh, I wish it wasn't a confused age, but I think we can probably agree that it is a confused and uh, desperate age. Just a few of uh, the challenges that we have out. Here's one way to think about it. Um, there are some Christians who love our president. They love the fact that he was at the Value Voters Summit last week, and they're very happy that he's delivered on certain promises related to the Supreme Court. They're excited that he's protecting religious freedom, that he's rolling back certain things. They're very excited about him showing up at a Christian event. There are other Christians, maybe even perhaps the children of some of the people that were at the Value Voters Summit, who say, how can you support this guy who seems to be the, you know, a, a large picture of many character deficiencies and who seems to be uh, much more willing to say all kinds of harsh words against NFL players while not being so excited or reserved about saying anything about torch-wielding white supremacists who say Jews will not replace us. There's confusion between these two groups of people. I'm an African-American, and even though I was born in 1965, when you get the Civil Rights Voting Act of 65, we haven't gotten as far as we'd like to get on race, and some would argue that we're even more divided on race uh, than we realize. For whatever it meant that Barack Obama got elected as president, people think we're more divided rather than less. In a completely different domain, I mean, many of you have probably heard about the Harvey Weinstein story, which is sort of blowing open what's been hiding in plain sight for many people, which is the fact that there are many things that go on in places like Hollywood and corporate America where sexual abuse and harassment of women is rampant. And now, maybe even some of you even saw the hashtag MeToo movement where people are starting to tell their stories of sexual harassment, and people are wondering, how have we let this go on? It just seems crazy, but it's been going on and on. And I could keep going on and on about many things. I mean, think of all the big problems I'm leaving out, the big problems in which people have very different opinions and where they're not really willing to even talk to each other about these things. My former colleague, Alan Jacobs, uh, said this recently about the state of affairs in our country. He said, I'm sure there are times where it has been bad, as bad or worse, but I do think we're in this really weird place 
where the media through which we engage one another keeps us in a permanent state of agitation and hostility. The external consequences have not been overwhelmingly tragic yet. We're not slaughtering one another in the streets, but are people internally messed up? People are going through day after day in a state of profound agitation, having to mark their place on the ideological landscape through social media. Friends, for certain, we are not in a time where there's lots of sanity. For me, there's not lots of hope, and there's definitely not lots of peace. What is a Christian to do in a time like this? I think the first thing we have to do is face some of the temptations that we have in a moment like this, like the temptation of cynicism. A friend recently wrote this in an article in Christianity Today. This is a section. He said, he goes, much of the news in 2017 has threatened to push my realism in the direction of cynicism. Everywhere I look, I find myself tempted to offer the most cynical take on my neighbors. Their votes, myopic self-preservation. Their social media posts, virtue signaling. Their silence, cowardice. When they change their minds, it must be cultural capitulation. Even within the church, there seems to be an increasing temptation to believe the worst of others. On edge and distrustful, we are tempted to wash our hands of each other altogether. Why risk the struggle for unity in the body when we're just going to get burned? Then uh, you know, another temptation, I don't have a quote for this one, is just the temptation to be like the people in a disaster movie who are in a panic. Now, I grew up in the 1970s where the people were making these big blockbuster uh, movies. Check out sometime these the 70s movies I call The Towering Inferno, Earthquake, Poseidon Adventure, where they would have a cast of like 20 or 30 at least formerly A-list actors. Uh, and uh, what usually happens in a disaster movie? Well, most of the people run around like they're crazy. You know, they run in the wrong direction instead of the right direction. They do all kinds of selfish things, and they don't do things generally that are inclined toward their safety. They act crazy. In a moment like this, there may be a temptation to just act crazy and to give up. But there's another temptation, that is perhaps to give into your pride and anger, choose a side and join the madness that way. And perhaps especially by criticizing those who don't support your causes, those who just don't get it. And then, of course, maybe there's this uh, temptation. The temptation to escape into the digital distraction of your choice. Just let me go into whatever virtual world there is or whatever social media world I prefer and let me just hang out there and stay there, keep my head down, and pretend all this other stuff isn't there. Let me go into my own virtual reality and just ignore it all and maybe when I come back to reality, it didn't really happen. 
Maybe that's your temptation. And then there's this last temptation. Just the temptation to despair and apathy, to say there's no use, just sit on the couch and sigh. Maybe that's the temptation. Instead of yielding to these temptations, I want to invite you to consider what I believe is actually a great opportunity that we have in this moment of confusion and despair and anger and you fill in the blank. Think about what Paul says to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58. He says, our brothers and sisters, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in your work of the Lord because your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So, Sarai Price, three things he urges us to. First, what does he mean when he's telling us to be steadfast? Think about it this way. We are in a world where we are in information overload. Maybe some of you have heard of what's called the 24-7 news cycle. I mean, information comes at us like this all the time. All kinds of stories. There's more information, more stories than we have the capacity for. But, of course, we get these stories, and because the people who are giving us these stories want to get ratings and want to get advertising, generally, they're not interested in giving us, like, the best, most heroic stories. They're more interested in stories that are going to get your attention. What kind of stories are those? Usually the bad ones. And so we are in an avalanche of these stories over and over again, and it threatens to overwhelm us. And Paul's point here about being steadfast, the point is not to deny that there are bad things that are going on, not to deny that there are all those stories, but to be steadfast because, I mean, what's the big point about 1 Corinthians 15? Paul is talking about the hope we have because Christ has been raised and what it means to have your disposition because Christ has been raised. It's very easy in the wake of all of this information, in the wake of all these stories, in the wake of all the responses that people have to be anything but steadfast, but to just get swept away by it all. But instead, what we need to do is to be people who are steadfast in our faith, in our trust, in our hope in Christ, because we know the end of the story. You know, we're not the first climate, the first place in history where there's been bad news. We're really tempted in our moment because there's so much of it and because people say, oh my gosh, it's never been divided like this before. Read a little history <laughs> and then come back and talk to me about division in world history because you're going to see that it's really not a new thing. We just learn about it in new ways with our new technology, but it's not a new thing. So in this moment, though, it's, it's our experience. It's happening to us in these particular ways, and you're tempted to be swept away. But no, be the person of hope in Christ, as they were in the first century, opposed by the Roman Empire, and don't let yourself be overwhelmed by this. Remember the end of the story. The second thing Paul urges us to do, he says, be abounding in the work of the Lord. Now, we have to ask ourselves the question, well, now, what is the work of the Lord? Now, some people, now, usually a place like Dort isn't a place where this happens, but I need to say it anyway. The work of the Lord means be really strong on the proclamation of the faith 
inviting people to be rightly related to Jesus and proclaim that end of story. That is the work of the Lord. Thankfully, in a place like Dort, you know, where you, you know people like my guy Kuiper, you know that we talk about this, you know, Jesus being over all things, and all things matter to him, and our life needs to go into all the areas of creation. The work of the Lord is the work of human life in all of God's world. That is the work of the Lord, and doing it as people who are reconciled to God. And when we do that, by the way, because this is an important thing, sometimes a hazard of being at a place like Dort or, or being a Kyperian like myself is, you go, yes, all of that work beyond Sunday is the most important thing for us, so let's talk about law, let's talk about politics, let's talk about art, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Let's not talk so much about personal piety. If Jesus is Lord over everything, he wants all that you are on your inside as well as what you do on the outside. It's the whole package. The work of the Lord is about our internal transformation as much as it is about our public witness after the benediction on Sunday. And when we're involved in that public witness on Sunday, it certainly includes asking this big question, how do we do better at loving our neighbors as ourselves, recognizing that, by the way, that a neighbor is anyone who is an image bearer. The neighbors are not just the people that agree with me, not just the ones that are part of my tribe, but people who are image bearers, even if they can't stand me, even if they think I'm wrong, even if they think I'm evil, that I am to be the one who says, it's my job to love you as a neighbor and to look for little ways and great ways, interpersonally all the way to public policy, to love our neighbors as ourselves and to be the ones who are seeking to do that rather than saying, what's the use? We're so divided, nobody can ever have a conversation. So I invite you to do this. There's a chance that there's some relative or friend you have who really thinks about things very different from you. And the only reason that you still have a friendship is because you've agreed to have a truce. And that truce is you say, okay, our relationship is either we've got a great relationship, I don't speak to you and you don't speak to me, or if we do speak to each other, we don't talk about things that matter. I want you to enter into conversation about things that matter with people that disagree with you. And to enter into it with them just because they're human and because they matter by being image bearers. And because if you're a Christian who loves your neighbor as yourself, you want their flourishing as much as you want your own. But also because you're loving your neighbor as, as yourself, what you're not doing is saying, so, okay, if they're like me, then of course I want to treat them well. If they're not like me, then I've got an excuse to lie about them and to mistreat them and to dehumanize them. No, because they're a neighbor, I want them to be treated as like I want to get treated by anybody. You ever been lied on? You ever been misunderstood? You ever have somebody say about you, um, I've got you figured out, and you're thinking, I don't even understand the person you think I am. You treat other people like you want to be understood, whether they agree with you or not. Imagine what would happen if people started acting that way, if Christians started engaging each other that way. Even think about these Christians that are divided about our president. It might be interesting if they got together 
at the bowling alley, and as they're bowling, they decide to have a conversation and say, okay, but here's the ground rules. We don't lie about each other, we don't dehumanize each other, and we listen. And we ask, what matters to you? What are you afraid of? What are you concerned about? What do you wish would happen? What do you hope for? And you listen to what people say. And you try to understand why they say what they say. And then if you do that, you might discover that a deepening relationship emerges. And that whether you wind up agreeing or not, you do recognize that, wow, we've humanized each other. Now, friends, you do that, you are doing the work of the Lord. There's a lot of dimensions of the work of the Lord, but that's a big part of the work of the Lord in this moment of confusion and insanity. People will, people will say they disagree massively, but they act like they love each other. I don't get it. They don't get it because they've never seen sanity these days, but they'll be seeing sanity in practice. Here's a third reason if none of these other things convince you. He says, your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Now, I love finding out the results about things, like, soon. I love seeing how things play out soon. Here's the thing. We don't know, with all the things that we are doing, participating in God's world, we don't know how much those things are factoring into what God wants to have happen in his world and in his big salvation history story. But what Paul is telling us here is that if you are participating in the work of the Lord, even if you go to your grave wondering whether it mattered at all, Paul is telling you right here, it matters and you will see that it mattered. You will see that it was a contribution. You will see that God valued what you were doing. We're a society of instant gratification. We can't have the view of instant gratification. You've got to take the long view, the long eschatological view where you're talking about at the end, at the consummation of God's kingdom, I'm going to see that because I participated in the work of the Lord, because I sought to abound in the work of the Lord in this time of craziness and apathy, I discovered at the end, God said, hey, come here, let me show you something. You, you remember all those little things that you did? things that nobody seemed to notice, things you wondered whether it mattered at all. Hey, look at this. This is what you did. This is how it mattered. Your work was not in vain. And the reason for all of this is because you know the end of the story. Because Christ has risen, the end has begun. But the end of the end hasn't happened yet. Some of you probably like horror movies. Some of you like scary stories. There are probably some of you, you like horror stories, but you might think, you know, oh, it's just really hard to sit through it. It's really hard to go all the way through the story. So what do you do, uh, you know, in this era, you know, if, if, if you have the DVD or you're streaming it or whatever, you go to the last five minutes. And when you go to the last five minutes, you go, oh, that's how it ends. Okay. And because you know how it ends, now you go back and you watch the rest of the movie. 
And in that movie, there's all kinds of crazy stuff that's happening. And you may be threatened to think throughout the movie, oh man, evil is going to win. But now that you've seen the end of the story, you go, wow, it's a roller coaster ride. But I know how it ends. And because I know how it ends, now when I see these ups and downs, I don't look at these ups and downs like they are the end of the story. The moment that we're in right now where everybody's saying isn't all this division, all of this anger, all of this confusion, all of this despair, people are, people are tempted to think about this like that is the final word. But if you believe that Christ has been risen, and he has, here's what you need to recognize. It's true that there's despair but it's not the end. It's true that there's confusion, but that's not the end. It's, conf- it's true that there's madness, but it's not the end. It's true that people do evil things and seem to get away with it, but that's not the end either. You're tempted to believe all of those things have a period after them, but every single one of those things has a comma after it. And you know if there is a comma after something, there's a what's next after the comma. And there's going to be what next, what next, what next, until Jesus comes and sets everything in place and brings the shalom that we are waiting for. All of those things have a shelf life, an expiration date. It's going to run out. And then Christ will come. And he will set everything right. And you will see that the way that you sought to be faithful while people were losing their heads amid the craziness, you will see that your faithfulness was something that God says, see, your work was not in vain. What you did absolutely mattered. Friends, I invite you today to be people in a time of great confusion, to be the ones who say, I admit I am really tempted to lose my mind. I am tempted to go into escapism, but I am going to do the work of the Lord instead. I am going to engage this world. I am going to love all of my neighbors. I'm going to refuse to put an asterisk beside neighbor when it comes to people I don't like. And I'm going to humanize everyone. And I'm going to seek to be faithful and abound in the work of the Lord because I know that in spite of how horrible it might seem, Those horrible things are not the end of the story. Christ and his kingdom, the fulfillment of his kingdom, that's the end of the story. And because that is the end of the story, then I will be faithful, I'll be steadfast, I'll be unmovable, I'll abound in the work of the Lord because I know the end of the story. I challenge you to be people who live like you really know the end of the story, rather than people who believe that the present is the end of the story. Live like it's the end of the story and watch how people respond to that witness. They will see why the gospel is greater news than they can possibly imagine. Will you pray with me? Lord, I thank you that the gospel is greater news than we can imagine. We are so tempted to believe that the terrible things of the moment, the confusing things of the moment, that these things are the last word. But Lord, you have the last word. Lord, by your spirit, 
convince us more and more of this amazing truth that because Christ is risen and will come again, that we can be your faithful people in a world that acts like it has lost its mind. Help us, especially in the moments when we're tempted the greatest, to check out. Encourage us, empower us, enable us to be your faithful witnesses in all kinds of circumstances. We praise the name of Christ. Amen. Go with God, my friends. Amen.